Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. When you are really good at something, like so good that you make it seem easy, it can be a trap. Seth Rogen, you know him as a comedian and a filmmaker, he talks about this. Seth says that for a lot of people, the funnier something is, the easier people think it was to do. Seth will tell you why he thinks comedy is so undervalued and what it's like to talk to David Letterman about weed, something not a lot of folks can say they've done. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. All right, the Toronto International Film Festival just kicked off, and one of the buzziest films on the circuit this year is called Dumb Money. It's about uh, the real-life GameStop scandal you might have heard of that rocked Wall Street. Everyday people kind of flipped the finance industry on its head and turned GameStop into the world's hottest investment. Seth Rogen stars in the movie. You might know him from films like Superbad or Pineapple Express or An American Pickle. Maybe you like his cannabis company, Houseplant, or maybe you were his neighbor in Vancouver, British Columbia, where he grew up. Those are a few of the many ways you could know Seth Rogen. Uh, But a couple years ago, he let people see a different side of himself with his book of personal essays called Yearbook. It's candid, honest, and really funny. And Vancouver, Canada's own Seth Rogen joined Tom Power to talk about it. You start your book in a really interesting way. You talk about how you started getting into comedy when you were a kid, and your first act was about your grandparents. I wonder if you could tell me about your grandparents and why they were so funny. Um, I mean, it's one of these... American Pickle actually got into it a little bit. I mean, it's just like how different you can be from the previous generations. You know, my grandmother was born in a caravan fleeing, you know, the pogroms of Eastern Europe, Um in the early 1900s, my grandfather was born in Winnipeg, but he was a very tough, you know, he fought in World War II. He played football. Um, and they didn't like me very much my entire childhood. They just were not that interested in me. And um, <laughs> and then when my sister was preparing for her bat mitzvah, yeah, she was 13, so I was 10. I didn't want to go to synagogue, so my parents would drop me off uh, at their house every Friday. And... And that was really the first time I started to spend a lot of time with them and when I was 10 and 11 and yeah, and they were hilarious and they were deaf. And that was, that was the main thing that I know is they were, they were deaf, but they would scream at each other all night. Um, And they didn't know what the other person was arguing about, but they would just scream at each other. And, um, and so, yeah, that's what uh, some of my first jokes were about was, uh, was my grandparents. (laughs) And And they liked it. Like, I think, I think I was, I was expecting that turn in the memoir to be like, and then she sat me down and, and said, if you ever joke about me that way, like they were into it. And, and I wasn't expecting that either. I was worried with my grandparents. Yeah, that they would that they never liked it. But yeah, the truth is that like when I started writing jokes about other things, they were very insulted. <laughs> you seem to have no fear about stand up when you were 12 years old. Like I think a lot of 12 year old kids would be afraid to get up at a school assembly or something like that. But you seem to have no fear about it. No, I was much more afraid of like speaking to a girl like one-on-one in class than I was like getting up in front of 
200 people and telling jokes. Like, uh, yeah, I look back, honestly, at how little fear I had um, when it comes to stand-up. And I, I ascribe it to, I think, I, I think it's just because I was young and I just didn't know that, I didn't understand the stakes of it. I didn't understand the kind of, and, and, and they weren't my friends and my peers. And I don't think that, when I look back, probably had a lot to do with it. It's like, it specifically was people I was never going to see again. Like, and because I was underage, that fact was even more compounded, you know? Like, like they, they, were, they were old people I was never going to see again. Like, I really didn't care what they thought that much, <laughs> which is not a good thing for a stand-up. <laughs> yeah, like it was like putting on a costume or something like that. Yeah, it was interesting. Um but uh, yeah, as I've gotten older, I've grown much more sensitive to putting myself out there in some ways. But I've, I've also been become more calloused probably over the years. <laughs> Around the same time you meet Evan Goldberg, who would become your writing partner and your best buddy. Tell me when you realized that you and Evan sort of would be best pals. Um, pretty soon after we met. And I think at that age, that happens pretty fast. I, there's a few people I've met in my life where like... I remember I met someone once on an airplane and by the time we landed, we were best friends and we're still friends. <laughs> and that was when I was 15. And so, um, yeah, me and Evan, I think I knew him a little bit, but I was at, um, this girl, Julia Marinus's bat mitzvah. And, um, it was a very pressurized situation, you know, this whole year of going to bar and bat mitzvahs. I was very preoccupied with kind of what the other kids thought of me. And then I remember seeing, uh, these two kids at a, at Julia's bat mitzvah, uh, just cutting open glow sticks and dumping the glowing ooze on themselves. <laughs> and they seem to be having a really good time. Uh, and I went over and met them and it was Sammy and Evan who, um, went on to become my best friends and, and the namesakes of the, the, the characters in super batter are named after them. Um, and myself and, and I truly think by the end of Julia's bat mitzvah, we were best friends. Um, and we were, uh, literally chemically bonded by the n noxious ooze that we were uh, dumping on ourselves <laughs> throughout the course of the evening. <laughs> and, and you started like you started writing super bad when you were when you were kids as well. You and Evan, like, yeah. What what makes like thirteen, fourteen year old kids start writing a movie? I just thought we could do it, I, and so did he. We just thought like, why not? And that's the funny thing with art is like. People try to apply this to art, I find, but it is not the case. Is There is no precedent for art for having to have done it a long time to be good at it. Yeah. I think like other jobs, like you want an experienced surgeon. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you want an experienced dentist, dentist, airplane pilot, maybe yeah. things like that. You know, there are, there's very famous examples of like actors who like their first role is incredible and timeless and something that people look back on for decades as a marvel there's orson wells made citizen came he was 24 years old you know um he had not been making movies a long time um and so what's interesting yeah is that there there is it's a job that there is no precedent for experience lending itself to quality you know and so i think some part of us recognize that and we're just like, why couldn't teenagers write a movie about teenagers in high school? Like, if anything, we're the best suited people to be doing this. Um, why do we have to be old to write a movie about this? If anything, it'd be, it'd be weirder if we were old trying to write a movie about this, you know? Um, 
and again, with art, like it wasn't even like, why do we have to have been doing this a long time in order to be good at it? Like, you know, Haley Joel Osment was a good actor, but he's eight years old or something, you know? So it's like, why? Well, like, you, you don't have to be acting a long time to be great at it. Like, this kid's been alive eight years and he's great at it. You you can be good your first time out, you know? Yeah, and, uh, and you can only be yeah. good your first time out. Or like, uh, yeah. like, a lot of people will come in to talk to me and they'll... What they'll end up saying to me is something along the lines of like, I'm just trying to get back to what I was before I made. Like, these are people who are worth billions of dollars and they're trying to get back to what that was when they made their first thing. Right. Oh, yeah. And I very much recognize that we 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 probably can't a and that still the first the first thing we made is probably our in by most metrics considered our best thing. You know, um, but I think part of that is because it's our first thing, and 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 it's uh, you know, it's it, it's different because of that. It's because it's the first time people were exposed to our writing and our sensibilities and our you know, um, our take on things, and um, you know, in the fifteen years or whatever it is since Superbad came out, like it's not as fresh as it was simply because like you have received product from us before, you know, a lot of them. I'm amazed that we're still able to make anything that people are remotely interested in. If anything, I'm, I don't think it's like a Marvel that the first thing we made was our best thing. I more think it's incredible that things we made subsequently are considered to be remotely as good as that thing, which some of them are, which I'm very happy about, you know? <laughs> I, I guess it's because I still, I still feel when I watch anything that you make that I still feel a lot of that guy with Evan. Yeah. Just essentially saying, like, wouldn't it be funny if... Yeah, I mean, and I think that is part of it. Is we really are not trying to recapture anything. If anything, we're constantly trying to push ourselves to do new and exciting things that we find like very personally entertaining. And that's like first and foremost what we are chasing is like what do we want to be watching, and that uh, changes over the years. You know, what and I that mean? doesn't get harder when it's like, yeah, we want to do whatever we want to be funny, but like also there's like a studio now and we i think a part of it what what plays to our advantage is like we came up in the studio system like super bad was a studio movie the first you know the first sets i were on were you know Ford Yale virgin anchorman yeah freaks and geeks was like an nbc like, like it was a real deal yeah. you know yeah yeah freaks and geeks was an nbc show i was a writer for a fox network show when i was my first job you know so like real studio i remember it's funny my wife still talks about it but when we first started dating um was between when we shot 40 year old virgin and when it came out um and and there was no trailers or commercials for anything for it i remember inviting her to a screening for it and being like you know i made this movie and we're doing like a test screening for it um do you want to come and i remember it's like the logo like the universal logo came up at the beginning and she was like it's a real movie. Like, I'm like, yeah, it's a real movie. She's like, I didn't think it was a real movie. Like, I thought it was like some little, you know, like like tiny little movie that like maybe one day would see the light of day. Not like bomb, but bomb, 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 like big, you know. Uh, and I was like, oh no, like, and and honestly, like, like because she went to film school, she grew up in, an, came up in an independent world, so it was not her assumption that that is what we had made. But I, again, yeah, my first job was were on NBC and Fox and things like that. So in my head, like, no, a movie was a was a movie. It was a studio movie, you know. And independent movies were honestly not even something I was that interested in pursuing. That that wasn't the audience that I 
was trying to capture, you know? Well, I think that leads pretty well to the book, right? Because I, I want to I be as generous as I, I can here because I really loved it. Like, I really, really loved it. And I, and I do find lessons in it. And I have read reviews that are like, oh, you know, that's, that's, it's a very, very funny book. But don't go looking for any deep analysis here. But, like, I actually do find some of it. And, and maybe we'll get into that. But it yeah. does feel like you were you were trying to just make an entertaining book for a bunch of people to find entertaining. For sure. That's a hundred percent what I was trying to do. I was trying to make something funny. And honestly, like one of the most encouraging messages I've been getting a lot of on social media in the last few days as the book has come out is a lot of people saying like, this is the first book I've read in 10 years. <laughs> and like, that is honestly like kind of the audience I was going for is people who don't generally look, to books for the thing that they want, which is just like entertainment. And that's something that I thought a lot about and have, as I was writing the book and kind of have been trying to reconcile, it was one of the things, kind of the hurdles I thought is like, entertainment is not what books are always for. You know, like when you make a movie, like you want it to have lessons and insight and all this stuff, but like it's for entertainment, you know, like it, it can't be boring. It has to be funny. It has to, if you're making a comedy, like it has to get laughs every few minutes or, or you're failing. You know what I mean? Um, and I wanted to focus on making a book that was very honest and, and about me and my experiences. But but I first and foremost wanted to make something that was a form of entertainment. And, and again, I think in order for something to be entertaining, it has to tick more boxes than just is this funny? I think it has to be relatable. It has to feel honest and it has to at least feel like it you know, is trying to provide some insight, even if it's just into the person who is writing the story, you know, but, um, but yeah, that my, my, my main directive to myself was to write something that would entertain people and be funny for people. Yeah. And I, and I guess I wondered, like, do we not value that enough? <laughs> I can tell you for sure, as someone who has done this a very long time, nothing is valued less on this planet creatively than comedy. It is by far the least valued uh, creative output. My, I've done, I, it's like, I've seen my, my wife has done puzzles that have gotten more praise than entire comedic <laughs> films that we've made. Like, yeah. it, 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 like that, 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 that is factual. Like no one thinks anything is easier than comedy. Nothing is, uh, it is just, um, it is not viewed as something that is hard to do. Um, it is not rewarded. It is not acclaimed. It is not lauded. Only not like it's almost there's almost like this ratio where like the less funny your comedy is trying to be, the more acclaim it gets. You know what I mean? Like 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 a Wes Anderson movie is funny. It's not trying to like kill in a theater. It's not like it's trying to like it's not like his goal is like I want people like laughing hysterically every minutes you know what i mean it's humorous Uh, you know rather than it's exactly but with our movies we're like we're trying to we're trying to destroy and we're also trying to have great stories and great characters and emotional moments and things like that but like it's almost like the funnier your movie is the less people uh in general think that you worked hard on it (laughs) so in order to have i guess both success and like happiness making the stuff that you're making do you have to sort of come to terms with that? <laughs> yeah, like do you have to sort of silence the part of your brain that wants that Daniel Day Lewisness? For sure. And if anything, I'm grateful. I've come to the place that I'm incredibly grateful. That is not a part of my 
career experience is trying to be rewarded <laughs> for our work. But it also feels like that gives you that also feels like that gives you like like true joy. You know what I mean? Like yes. like a, a purer joy. For sure. Yeah, we're not chasing like the approval. We're only want we're really chasing the approval of our audience. We're not as much chasing the approval of our peers. <laughs> For better or worse, <laughs> but, 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 but this is all very interesting because there are there are stakes, and you do go into the like stakes that are bigger than any any kind of more critically acclaimed Vincent Gallo yeah. film. Like you look at like you look at the interview, and you talk about the interview, and this is kind of the one movie you do go in depth in on the book, where you you know the interview is about a talk show host who lands an interview with Kim Jong Un in North Korea, and the CIA asks if he can assassinate Kim Jong Un on the trip, and an ambassador to North Korea calls it an act of war. Sony ends up getting hacked by North Korea. Thousands of internal emails were leaked online. You had full time armed security. Yeah. Did you ever think you were gonna die? Um. No more than I think I'm going to die on the average day-to-day -day basis, which is like somewhat. Um, I uh, uh, I was not worried about. I was I was maybe as always, if anything, more worried about a crazy American person killing me, which again could be said about pretty much uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but uh, um, predating the interview as well. But um, that was more my fear. I wasn't afraid of like a North Korean agent coming to West Hollywood to get me. I was more afraid of like some crazy American person I don't I can't even rationalize yeah. why, but mostly that's what I was afraid of. It's like, is some weirdo American going to kill me? But, um, but even still, I was not, I wouldn't say I was incredibly worried about it. I'd say I was like a little worried about it, but not, 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 I wasn't like, it wasn't like, I wasn't losing sleep over it, you know? What, I know this is a bit broad, but like, what was it like to live through all that? Um, it was, it was very stressful at the time and unpleasant. Um, and, um, you know, as I talk about in the book, and I think this speaks to what a shallow person I am, <laughs> like what really hurt was that the movie itself was getting shit all over a lot and that people seemed to be asking a lot of like, is it worth it for this movie? Which I thought, again, which to me, was just a very hurtful conversation to be having because it was very much attacking the quality of our work and um, implying that if maybe we were smarter, that it would be worthwhile, which um, I don't, again, it, it was just, that's an unpleasant conversation. But truthfully, um, I think it was a great recalibration for my, you know, uh, gauges as far as like what is actually controversial, you know? I think a lot of comedians especially talk about controversy and being wrapped up in controversy and, you know, um, stepping into controversial waters and feeling as though they're really the center of a big whirlwind of news or something like that. Um, and I look at a lot of that and think like that, what you think is controversy is not like uh, some people mad at you on Twitter or something. That's not controversy. Like you're trending for 10 minutes. Cause whatever something someone doesn't like what you said like that's not controversial like unless like the president is dedicating entire <laughs> news conferences for it unless there's which, documentaries which did books. happen like obama had exactly. to talk about your film yeah, yeah. yeah. like there's university courses about it like it, you know it, it, that is that is controversy you know but what i also saw is how 
wrapped up in everyone's own shit. Everyone is. And, and as much as I felt like I was the center of the universe from it and had genuine, general, genuine fear, like, will I be able to keep working? Is this something that will like stay on me forever? Has this like tainted everyone's perception of me in some way? I found that just like, no, like people forgot about it, like so fast <laughs> and, and were so wrapped up in themselves that like, I, like it was not. I remember I was on Howard Stern a few months later. He was just like, "Was that a big thing?" I was like, "Yes, that was a big thing." Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't that big thing. Was that was that big? Because yeah, you talk in the book about like that. You know, like it was on a three p.m. on Comedy Central. Like this thing that had ruined yeah. your life briefly. It all, yeah, it'll be on like TBS. It'll be on Comedy Central one afternoon. Like it, it's just it, it could not be more normal now. And that's what's also so funny is it's something where it's like. Yeah, like as soon as some movies like airing with like Tide commercials interrupting it, you're like, this is not controversial anymore. <laughs> like, is there is there a lesson in that? Like, it reminded me of like something that I think Conan said one time about like he was he was he was getting off the 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 NBC show or going to the TBS show or something like that, and he was he was he went to Dick Cavett and was like, I don't know what to do about what my legacy is going to be, and he was like. Man, go visit Clark Gable's grave. I think it was Clark Gable. He was like, Clark Gable at one point was like the most famous human that could possibly ever exist. Like not even just that did exist, but like there had never been a famous person as worldwide famous as Clark Gable. He was like, who's hanging out with Clark Gable's grave these days? Like who who's writing blogs about Clark Gable? Like, you know, it's this is, you know, this fleeting. fleeting. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, I do. It's funny. I and it was actually probably a very therapeutic and important moment for me. A, year, a few years ago, I was on my good friend Billy Eichner's uh, show, Billy on the Street, and the sketch was that uh, I was I was actually the cameraman, so I was obscuring my face. But we went around New York, and he told New Yorkers that I had died, <laughs> and <laughs> the joke was that he told people I died, and then I came out uh, actually as the cameraman. Um, and what was sobering i would say which is not a word i use lightly <laughs> was uh how few people gave a flying f- that i died in any way shape or form um, it was i would say uninteresting to most people uh would be the best word i could define it as what a thing to go through that's like a you know that's like an exposure therapy you know it was but in a way it was great and very freeing in in, in a lot of ways because like i do think every famous person should be exposed to that to see that like as wrapped up as you are in your own shit and as important as all this seems to you like who the knows like you don't know and that's the other thing is you don't know like you know like people hated moby dick till like a hundred years after that mother died you know <laughs> like like you like you don't know like again like yeah like the green hornet could be the the greatest movie of all time in a hundred years from now like who you don't know these things slash none of that matters because we'll all it'll all just be dust one day <laughs> but that's kind of it right that is kind of yeah and that doesn't make it less meaningful what you're doing. No, not at all. It makes it less stressful. <laughs> that is some good perspective right there from, from Seth Rogen. That's the first part of his conversation with Tom Power. You're going to hear more of their chat in just a minute. They will talk about this. These eyes 
every night for you these arms long to hold you the all-time jams. That's a bit of these eyes by the Guess Who. Coming up, Seth Rogen will tell you how Brampton, Ontario's Michael Sarah turned this song into comedy gold in Superbad. You remember Superbad? They'll talk about it. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. Q is back in a bit. These eyes Watched you bring my world I'm Ira Madison III. And I'm Louis Fertel. This year, we're excited to bring you new episodes of Keep It covering the holy trinity of award season, Emmys, Grammys, and the granddaddy of them all, the Oscars. It's like the Super Bowl for Hollywood, but with more sequins and fewer concussions. And we are continually blessed by iconic guests like Michelle Yeoh, Tori Kelly, Andy Cohen, and Jinx Masoon. New episodes of Keep It drop every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts, or subscribe to Keep It on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. You can be stoned and make a movie that people like, you know, um, not just make it about being stoned, but clearly made by people who are stoned as well, you know. Hey, he said it, not me. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of Tom's conversation with Seth Rogen. He was just talking about the film Pineapple Express, by the way. You'll hear more about that in just a minute. Uh, Seth is a filmmaker, entrepreneur from Vancouver, Canada. There is something else he's known for other than comedy. That is his use of cannabis, something he's never shied away from. Even when he was one of the only high-profile people who would speak openly about using marijuana. This is something he writes about at length in his recent book. So Tom decided to ask him about it. Have a listen. I want to ask you about a line in the book that that's stuck out to me, which is where you talk about um, you talk about drugs, you talk about weed. You write, drugs give me insights to my own behaviors that I haven't found elsewhere. Yeah. Can you give me an example of an insight or to something you've learned about yourself through that? For sure. Sometimes um, I think, and this is a common thing in life, is you just kind of you do things, you, you get into rhythms, you get into habits, uh, an opportunity comes up, you take it. And yeah, I've been, uh, there's been times when um, I've been, uh, hold on one moment, my wife is stalking around my office. Uh, I think she's gonna <laughs> ask me for something. No, no problem. <laughs> what do you want? Yes. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> what she's, what she's saying. <laughs> she wanted some weed. Oh, that's all right. Um, <laughs> that's what we're talking about. It's all right. Exactly. It was perfect timing. Is that where you keep uh, the weed? You keep the weed in your office? I just happened to have brought it up here with me. I think I can, it's all over the house, but I think I think I, I, I took it from where she is downstairs and brought right. it up here. Um, but um, yeah, I uh, so yeah, I think you get in these patterns of doing things. And like, yeah, I was at a point, I mean, very specifically, I remember at a time, and I kind of referenced it in the book where... Yeah, I'd taken a few jobs. Me and Evan had signed on to direct a pilot, and it was kind of going poorly, but we it just seemed like a good opportunity. And meanwhile, I was we had signed on to direct another movie as well that seemed very controversial. But again, we were like, you know, that's what we do. It's fine. And then uh, we did tons of shrooms one night, and I quit both those jobs the next morning. 
<laughs> with Evan. But like he agreed. And it was like while we were on shrooms, like we were having a good time. And there was a moment where we both looked at each other and we're like, are you thinking about what I'm thinking about? And he's like, I am, and we shouldn't talk about it right now. And I was like, I think we should. And he's like, uh. and then literally like, we're like, we should just not do them. He's like, yep, that's it. Let's not talk about it anymore. And then the next morning we just, we quit two jobs. And like, it was a very, it was something that would not have happened, uh, I think as easily had we not um, been on a very large amount of hallucinogenic drugs. But uh, it was something that, I mean, it was a very, measurable moment of getting insight into something we both of us getting insight into some things we had been doing and all of a sudden yeah like, uh you know realizing that they were not panning out or going or, or we weren't doing them for the reasons we should be doing them you know um, yeah and i think that's like that's profound for me because i think like when you first showed up in and i could be wrong about this but when you first showed up say around 40 year old virgin around knocked up like i think you were like a real canary in the coal mine for happy <laughs> weed usage in American press. Like up until then, you were either oh, yeah. you were either scared to admit it and you were like keeping it from other people, or you were Cheech Marin. Like, and no for disrespect sure. to Cheech Marin, but like, no, you were one of those two things. And and I think that what you did was actually talk about what it does for you. You know? Yeah, for sure. I think I was definitely, and I, and I had. David Letterman and um, Jay Leno and Jimmy Kimmel and uh, Conan and all these guys like tell me this to my face very explicitly as like they're like because at some point I feel like I asked Letterman or one of them just like why do you ask me about this all the time <laughs> like like I'm more than happy to talk about it honestly but I just like why you know and they're just like honestly because no one will talk about it like and because you will and they're like it's too good to pass up on that. Like they're just like we know a lot of a lot of famous people smoke weed and a lot of people smoke weed, but no one will just speak about it. And you are a successful, functional member of society, so it's interesting. Um, and I feel like it took, you know, David Letterman or someone like that saying that to me to be like, I get it. Like I, I am representing something that is not represented on television and in interviews in the media that much, which is like someone who like unabashedly smokes weed all day and does not judge themselves for it and is incredibly productive, you know, um, and professional and someone, you know, who, who punctual, you know? <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, it really, I remember I did Letterman once a few years ago or years ago. And, and, and it was the first time, like, you do these pre-interviews where they, you know, a lot of those uh, talk shows are pretty like meticulously planned out as far as like, they'll ask you this question, you go into this story. So you've been on any vacations lately? Oh yeah, I just got back from this place, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was the first time he, he literally, he threw out every question he had and just asked me about weed the entire time. And like very honest, when do you smoke it? How do you smoke it? Do you wake up and smoke? How do you, are you stoned right now? Do you act stoned? Do you write like how? And, and it was, it felt gen he felt it felt very real to me and um and he felt genuinely curious and it was one of those things that so many people would reference and so many people would talk to me about um as a very if you smoke weed a, a great moment for them where it was just like yeah like you could look and and cuz i remember when i was young I did have more shame about it. And I would, I would hear that act. I, I remember hearing like Jack Nicholson smokes weed, Harrison Ford smokes weed. And I remember being like, oh, that's amazing. Like you can do it. You can be like, 
a productive, successful person and smoke weed. I was worried that that wasn't the case. You know what I mean? Um, and so I was always also happy to talk about it because I was, I hoped it made other people feel better, you know, and I hope it, it cause I knew it made me feel better, you know? Um, and I also found, I think when we made pineapple express is like when we found that like when we speak to people about weed, it's like, it really can land well, you know, like that movie became so beloved among people who smoke weed, especially that it just really was encouraging and showed us like, oh, like this is an audience that like we do really understand because we are them. <laughs> and so like, it, it's not like we're interlopers. It's not like we're trying to, we're trying to appeal to potheads, but we're not. It's like, oh no, if we, we can really speak to this audience because we are this audience. And if we make, if we put a lot of thought and work and energy into things for this audience, they'll be really appreciative of it, you know? Um, and because also the subtext with a movie like Pineapple Express is that like stoned people made this movie and it's a real movie that got, you know, well received and made tons of money. Like, and I think that's very validating for a lot of people as well, which is like, oh, like you can be stoned and make a movie that people like, you know, um, not just make it about being stoned, but clearly made by people who are stoned as well, you know? Yeah, and, and a departure from the like, if you're not stoned, oh, come on, man, you got to get on board, that kind of thing. Oh, no, like, yeah. You know what I mean? You know? Yeah, we made it a real movie. And that, and that was a real a learning experience and a real philosophy we had, which was like, what if we treated a weed product like like it wasn't a weed product and it was just a good product, you know? Um, and 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 that was really, I think, what made Pineapple Express work so well. We were like, oh, it's about weed, it's about potheads, but we're gonna make it do all the things a good movie does. It'll have arcs, characters, stories, it'll be emotional, it'll be relatable, you know? Um, it'll, it'll be fun, it'll be structured well, you know? It'll have a good production value, we'll get good actors, good director, you know? And so, I think that was also very like cathartic for people in a way to see like, oh, this is what weed can be handled like this. Like it doesn't have to seem dumb. It can it can be professional and 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 as as well presented as any other subject matter. You know. Did you did you go back to Canada when the legalization happened? A few times, yeah. Uh, we have a weed company, uh, yeah. house plant in Canada and America. But yeah, it, I, I've been back a lot of times since legalization has happened. Yeah, it's 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 interesting what happened. You know, like that it that it became, I think, in line for the weed store. Yeah, I think people were shocked or surprised at. I think what I'm trying to say is that like there were people in suits. You know what I mean? Like there were people. Well, Canada went around its legalization in what I would describe as a terrible way. (laughs) 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 I didn't expect terrible at all. I really thought, you know. Um, I I do. I think the entire philosophy with which Canada legalized weed is wrong. The entire take is like in order to destroy the illicit market uh, or the illegal market, we will we will legalize weed. But the truth is, weed should have never been illegal in the first place ever. The only reason it's illegal is for racist reasons. And Canada has not reconciled that. And that is not as um, uh, ingrained into the the philosophy behind this as it it needs to be, you know? Um, The fact, alcohol is objectively more dangerous than weed, 100%. Any doctor will tell you that. 
the fact that it is far less regulated than weed speaks to the lapse in logic and judgment that has been applied to the regulation of weed. It is, as I said in a word, uh, terrible. This is this is fascinating to me. Listen, it's been great to talk to you. I want to make a quick turn before we go away yeah. from weed and away from the book. I want to talk just briefly about one of your movies and a scene that means a lot to us here on Q for whatever reason. Yeah. Take a listen to this. These eyes are crying. These eyes have seen a lot of love, but they're never going to see another one like I have. These eyes are crying. That is These Eyes by the Guess Who. That is maybe, I think, I was saying to someone last night that I think that These Eyes scene in Superbad is my favorite scene in a movie. <laughs> Can you tell me how that ended up in Superbad? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's fun. That party, so me and Evan and Sammy, the real me and Evan and Sammy, actually, when we were in high school, a stand-up comic I know was moving from uh, Vancouver to Montreal, and he had a going-away party. And me and Sammy and Evan went, and we were... 15 maybe um and everyone at the party was like stand-up comics in their 20s and 30s and people started doing cocaine people got way too messed up and started being very aggressive with us and 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 that there was a pig uh, and even at that <laughs> so that party that they wind up at in super bad is very much based on this party that we went to specifically that idea that you're like trapped in a room with a bunch of lunatics on cocaine basically um and yeah we had this idea there's this running joke in the movie where that michael Sarah looks like someone named jimmy's brother yeah that is said a few times and that jimmy's brother is a good singer um and so yeah it was mostly just we had this idea that michael uh, got himself stuck in this situation where he's trying to find a phone and make a phone call to call um, the girl that he's trying to buy beer for, and 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 in doing that, he finds himself stuck in a room with these cokeheads, and the only way to get out of it is to sing for them, and he sings these eyes. Um, it actually was not the only song he sang. He also we did a version with the thong song oh. by Cisco. <laughs> yeah, I know that. Yeah. Uh, which Michael Sarah requested because he's like. He's like, I already know every word to the thong song, so we should also do a take with the thong song. And I was like, why do you already know every word to the thong song? He's like, I just do. Don't worry. I do. And so we did. And then what was funny also, he's like, I don't know all the words to these eyes. And we're like, that's kind of funnier. It doesn't matter if you don't know the words. You should kind of just try to sing along. And so that... That is what created what is like probably the funniest moment where he's like, with you. Because he he didn't know the words and he was just kind of making it up as he went along. But uh yeah, it was it was wonderful. I could have watched Michael do that all like most things, I could watch Michael do that all day long. Whatever whatever reason it landed deeply in our office. And as soon as as soon as we as soon as we found out we were we were lucky to have you and we've been looking forward to having you. Canadian boys singing a Canadian song in a movie written by two Canadians. It's just, it's a lot coming together. <laughs> it's beautiful for the CBC. Seth, nice to talk to you. Nice to talk to you. I appreciate it. I 
I think those are the actual lyrics. Those are them, right? You can Google it. Okay, that was uh, that was Tom Powers' conversation with Seth Rogen. And that's it for Q today. Tomorrow on the show, it is Rufus Wainwright. He'll talk about returning to the folk songs that shaped his early musical life on his latest album, which is called Folkocracy. He's got this really uh, all-star lineup of contemporary musicians digging back to these beautiful old folk songs. So we will talk about that. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. I'll see you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.